0: Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by a very special guest, MD, MDMS, Robert W. Malone, inventor of the core mRNA and DNA vaccine technology. He's a worldwide expert in RNA technologies. He's the CEO of R.W. Malone, MD, LLC, consultancy and analytics in the bio sector. He's a C-suite coach, expert witness, Uh, also does commercial intelligence. He also builds and manages teams to solve complicated problems in this space. So in 1989, he published a paper titled, I'm going to butcher this, Cationic Liposome Mediated RNA Transfection, and he went on to get over nine patents in the field. So I've asked him to join us here today so we can talk about mRNA vaccines, the current state of the world, and hopefully shed some light on what's going on. So Robert, thanks so much for joining us, my friend. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay and it's my pleasure, Daryl. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and also to talk, chat with your listeners. I look forward to it. So we're excited to have you here.
0: Before we even get into this, I wanna share something like this because there's a lot of misinformation going around. I wanna talk about how there's a quality of information, quality of evidence pyramid that typically starts with expert opinion and works its way up through various forms of evidence like peer reviewed evidence and verifiable evidence and so even before we get into this, because when I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you, I got some people, you know, kind of say a lot of different things you're asking about this. So this is clearly his profile on Google Scholar. And we can just talk about when we looked at the pyramid of evidence, the studies here and his, his depth of knowledge and experience in this field is, I, I don't want to say unparalleled, but it's obviously vast. I mean, there's this, there's the nine patents alone. If we really want, I can go through and show all you all of these things. Like, again, I want to get this out of the way because even he expressed at the beginning of this call how it can be kind of tiresome because, you know, the media spins things. And I actually want to talk about this a little bit later on in the call. Uh, Some of the propaganda machines, all that stuff. We can get into that later. But I just want to say, like, as far as someone who can speak to these topics, I really don't think you're going to sit bedside with anyone else who's more qualified at the moment. And that anytime you do speak to someone on any of these topics that you want to make sure you're getting valid information. And so I'm not trying to, in this conversation, I don't think we're trying to decree anything to anyone. We're not trying to declare this. We're just kind of inviting you to do the research for yourself, that the information is there. And if you, you know who to talk to, who to ask, because everyone has an opinion and Robert's got an opinion. And I'm trying to just vet that Robert is clearly very qualified to answer some of these. And I'm going to do my best as we talk to kind of back up some of the stuff we're talking about here on Zoom, whether we talk about what's on the screen or not. Um, So that's really it. So now, Robert, there's been so much fanfare going on. Before we even get into any of that, how did you even get into this? Like, what's your origin story? How did you even get into mRNA data? And and, uh, you were a physician at some point, weren't you?
1: I still am. I'm licensed uh, to practice medicine in the state of Maryland. i maintain maintained my license, just renewed it the other day. Okay. Uh, um, but I don't practice. I manage teams and I manage clinical trials in uh, design clinical trials as part of my kind of core competency. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the origin story, that's, that's a good 10 minutes. Um, okay. I'll try to make it brief. Okay. I, i uh actually i was originally a computer science student oh. at uh santa barbara community college i got i i uh got a bunch of awards there i was straight a student and i was recognized as the top computer science student this is nineteen eighty two i like to make the joke that uh if i had stuck with that um i would have been way better off financially than i am now having gone a uh, medical track um uh you know we were still there was still some punch card work back then uh and and it was absolutely the early days of tandy and and uh my dad uh built my dad was an electronics engineer he built uh, a computer himself using a kit um and uh so so that's kind of where i started off and it's where i learned my logic skills mm. um I, was actually being a, a coder for a couple of years, couple of intensive years, really taught me a lot about how to think and how to structure logic. It's mm. it's so so I but I decided that my mom had always said that she wanted me to be a physician, and uh, when I left the community college and went to UC Davis for my last two years of undergrad in biochemistry, and at that time they didn't even have a molecular biology degree, so went to UC Davis for a pretty hardcore biochem, uh, uh, bachelor's in science. And, um, I really, really wanted to do bench research. And at the time in the eighties, early eighties, it was just wicked hard to get into medical school. Okay. And, uh, to, to think about getting into medical school was to be the ultimate egoist. And, uh, so I, I felt like I had to kind of hedge my bet, something you're, you're, community will appreciate uh, that kind of logic. And um, so I, I figured I could, uh, if nothing else, become a scientist, if not a mm. physician. It's a
2: noble career. I ended up
1: being both in the end. Uh, okay. But I, I my mother was really worried about breast cancer, as were a lot of people, and for a good reason. And I, I wanted to do bench research as an undergraduate. So I looked for internship opportunities. And I was accepted into a lab in the Department of Pathology School of Medicine at UC Davis uh, with a very senior pathologist that was focused on mouse models of breast cancer. Uh, And uh, that lab was tightly affiliated with the Primate Research Center at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. I I later became a Primate research center investigator. And um, while I was there getting, you know, I was kind of like the lab pet. Uh, I worked my can off. I was all the time at the bench um, doing advanced molecular biology, southern blots, northern blots, which required me to work up RNA uh, from mouse samples and mouse blood, et cetera, and mouse tumors. And and, um, uh, while I was there, uh, this, little problem broke out in San Francisco and certain urban centers of gay men developing immunodeficiency syndrome. And uh, my, one of my two mentors, Murray Gardner, who used to be head of, he really was the founder of the uh, cancer center at USC and had become chair of department of pathology Murray together with Preston Marks and others recognized in 83, 84, that there was immunodeficiency syndrome being passed around in the monkeys. And uh, so they hunted that down with electron microscopy and identified the first retrovirus associated with immunodeficiency syndrome. That was published in Lancet, and then that kind of set off the subsequent cascade. Murray actually went with Bob Gallo to visit Luc Montagnier, I think it was in 84, um, that's immortalized in the uh, film and the band played on uh, HBO. And uh, he came back, literally came through customs with the virus that causes AIDS in his pocket. Um, and uh, I remember him coming into the building, just bouncing down the hall, talking about this, that he'd got this through customs in his pocket. Uh, and um, that set off a whole cascade that, that immersed all of the people around me uh, that I was embedded with, uh, that in the development of early understanding of of the molecular virology of AIDS and development of AIDS vaccines, something that I worked on later after I finished my MD when I came back to Davis. So I'd come out of this lab that had been involved in retroviruses. I was very focused in retroviruses. And one of the hottest things going at the time for retroviruses was gene therapy. It was believed that retroviral gene therapy was going to be the way to go. Um, mm. And uh, for me, I became totally enamored of the idea that there was going to be a gene therapist in every hospital. And this is a new specialty that I could play a role in founding. Right. And uh, so... So I was totally wrapped up in retroviruses and vaccines and retroviral biology and gene therapy and all that stuff. And uh, and I guess I kind of overshot the target because I got an MD-PhD scholarship to Northwestern. Uh, and uh, so not only did I get in, but I got a scholarship. Uh, but my wife and I were from California. We grew up in Santa Barbara area. and. Uh, um, and I can tell you that uh, Jill did not appreciate Chicago winners, and we'll just leave it at that. I'm Canadian, uh, so I know exactly so, what she's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that wind when it comes off the lake is wicked. Uh, so, and we had a, a newborn, our first uh, son, and, um, and she just wanted to get out of Dodge. So I applied for uh, my graduate work. Uh, I took my graduate exams and basically knocked it out of the park. I, I was like 99 plus percentile it for my GREs because, of course, I'd finished two years of medical school and and two years of really hardcore biochemistry at UC Davis. Um, so I I had my pick of places and the best place in the world to do gene therapy at the time was UC San Diego, because there are these two characters, Ted Friedman, who is the guy that originally came up with the idea in the late 70s when I was still in, in high school, and uh, Inder Verma, who was uh, eventually became head of the Salk Institute and had trained under this guy named David Baltimore. And Inder had been the one that had characterized reverse transcriptase in David Baltimore's lab, and that's what got David Baltimore the Nobel Prize. So, uh, so I wanted to go to San Diego because this was the place to be. I, you know, I it had, a, I thought be. a lot about myself, um, and, uh, and I thought that I could, could, uh, swim in those waters, uh, not realizing they were shark infested. Mm. Uh, so, uh, went to, went down there and, uh, in in there. They o- the only graduate program they had that would allow me to get access to these two guys was their biology program. So it's general biology PhD that I was enrolled in. And uh, but really intensive. La Jolla at the time was just exploding. You had Scripps Institute. You know, since then Tory Pines Road has become one of the hubs of biotech. Yeah world. I used to go I can Tory Pines. It was still it was still kind of emerging. Um, There was a company that had just recently been sold that had developed some of the core technology for monoclonal antibodies and hybridoma development. And that generated a whole bunch of millionaires and uh, something your audience can appreciate. Mm. And uh, what I've found over time is that sometimes folks that get a flash in the pan like that, they all think that they're geniuses because they're rich. Nothing Um, feels like success. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You start thinking um, you're golden. Yeah. Everything I touch is golden. Yeah, yeah, and and so La Jolla was full of that, and also it kind of distorted things because all of the academics saw all of this money coming in, and it it kind of drove them a little bit crazy. They all wanted to get rich too.
2: Right. So
1: it was a, a just a, a hyper um, uh, activated, hungry environment uh with, mm. with money and new ideas and the Scripps Clinic and the Salk Institute and uh and it, it was an amazing uh pressure cooker environment that I landed in. I had no I I I was still of the opinion that biotech was this uh you know uh um ivory tower on the hill and uh we're all gonna cure disease and do great works. Um Long story short, I landed in the Salk um, uh, working for Ender as the only graduate student in a postdoc lab of about 20 postdocs. Now, what that means, just to translate that for your audience, is in a big postdoc lab like that, what's done is by those you know, those that are aggressive, like Ender, um, is you pit the postdocs against each other. So you give mm-hmm. multiple postdocs the same project, and see who wins. It's kind of survival of the fittest environment, mm. or you might say, Lord of the Flies, um, is what that breeds in terms of the laboratory dynamics. Uh, and and you know, people sneaking in at night and looking at each other's lab books and all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's what goes on in yeah. these big uh, high high powered laboratories. At the time when I was there at the Salk, I think there was a half a dozen. Uh, Nobel laureates Renato Dobeco was there Jonas Salk was still there he has never got he never got a Nobel um Francis Crick was there uh and and it was truly uh um the center uh, it was it was a high-powered molecular biology and virology think tank okay uh with wet labs like I don't know has ever existed maybe the whitehead uh, at MIT, but and and there was a lot of cross fertilization between the Whitehead, the Salk. David Baltimore was trained at the Salk and then went to the Whitehead, and the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Center in Seattle. So there were these, at the time, there were these few islands of molecular virology and uh, biology and immunology. Um, just to illustrate, Susumu Tonegawa, who got the Nobel Prize for figuring out B cell maturation and uh, class switching and all that, also came out of the Salk so a lot of really high powered people now and i want to ask was you immersed in this okay go ahead well
0: i just wanted to so, say you you were surprised that the motivations were not necessarily about curing disease like i can you speak to that a little bit more
1: yeah uh so this was one of the shockers for me one of the um cognitive dissonance moments that eventually to read forward Drove me into a nervous breakdown when I got caught in a in patent wars and things between the university and the Salk. Um, uh, There's, you know, one of the things, one of the first kind of inklings that that uh, this wasn't Kansas anymore, is that there's a pecking order among Nobel laureates. you know, uh, did you get the prize yourself? How important was your prize compared to somebody else's prize? How many people were awarded at the same time? And what I found was a lot of these people are not very happy. Mm. Um, A lot of them are, are kind of obsessive, compulsive, not family people, not particularly well-grounded. And, you know, to get to that level intellectually, you pretty much have to be really obsessive. And then, then, then you threw as if that wasn't enough of a fire, which I think personally is about immortality. I think that, mm. that a lot of this this drive is about becoming in some way immortal through literature and prizes and things like that. But it distorts people's souls. Yes. On top of that, that so you had then thrown uh, cash um, into the fire. Uh, and and that had just hyped things up to a level. It didn't affect everybody. It affected more of the junior faculty in the San Diego region. They were they were all hungry uh, to get rich. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, this is a fascinating graph. Um, yeah, that's why. Yeah, I,
0: I, I'm really fascinated because I, I I spent some time in SoCal helping some people, and I helped some people make a few million dollars. And what really shocked me was that we had just made a ton of money. And you know, so there should be plenty to go around. And I was so shocked that even though we had made a ton of money for the company, I saw people get squeezed out of the company and their commissions eaten and things like this. And like you were talking about, one of the things that dawned on me is that for someone to, and this isn't necessarily everybody, but like you said, to achieve at a high level requires a certain level of obsession, and that obsession also includes all the minor marginal details. So even though there was a, a boatload of money to go around, you know, easy come, easy go, so to speak. And there was a lot of, I was so shocked because like, it just was weird for me, that that cognitive dissonance, almost like with you, like, I'm, I'm almost hearing my own story and you talking about your experience in California, because I was so shocked by that. And I, I mean, well, we all want to make money, right? But I keep coming back to this chart, because as we get news from these different agencies and that... I kind of think, like, to me, this speaks to um, not a performance-based motivation. You know, in the jungle, not everything kills you and eats you. Some things feed on you for as long as they can. And I have a background. There's a uh, barbell in the background here. In CrossFit, they were in legal battles for years. So they figured out how to essentially reverse type 2 diabetes. And they spent years in the courtroom fighting all these battles, and they won a bunch of these like this evidence demonstrates the long history of the CDC and NIH's prioritization of industry partnerships over their charter to protect the American public. So, the founder of CrossFit actually chartered an artist to make this kind of breakdown of how it works in this background, you know, because they were just winning these lawsuits by a landslide. And, and, and I, I don't think that all these, I'm not trying to say that all these institutions are corrupt to the core, that's not it at all. But I really think when humans are involved, there's a lot of like, you know, like women and money can do a lot to influence people here. This guy's winning the scientific misconduct award, you know, the NIH, like there's a lot of that, I think. Um, so I, I don't want to necessarily go too deep on that if you're uncomfortable with that, but it wasn't my intent to go straight to this right away. But how do you feel that that's <laughs> impacted things with this pandemic? So I, I, I'm in the Philippines right now, and I spent most of this pandemic in Vietnam. And Vietnam had no pandemic. We had our first two confirmed cases January 23rd. By February 6th, the whole country had shut down. All schools were closed at all levels from public school all the way through university. We did a two-week lockdown, and then they started doing phased rollouts. And I was living in Saigon at the time. And in March, a bar opened before they were supposed to, and a couple people end up at the hospital confirmed. And they do the contact tracing, and they found 14 cases. And one of them, early March was on the 26th floor of my condo. My family and I ended up waking up to people with hazmat suits walking the hallway, spray sterilizing the elevator, us being asked to sign waivers saying we're going to stay in our apartment until it's safe. And the building, it was like, it was like out of mood. The building police barricaded the building. No one could leave, come in, go. And so, I mean, I was, you know, I was terrified at the time and seven days into what ended up being an 11 day lockdown for us, seven days in all of Vietnam, April 1st, all of Vietnam started a three week lockdown countrywide lockdown you could still go to the grocery store and stuff but it was like events canceled businesses closed all that stuff and after that they opened up and then almost the rest of 2020 life was normal some people wore masks some people didn't wear masks there was like surgical precision to stuff yeah yeah
1: So, so um your story is is a fascinating example um there there is a a serious uh, academic study out from a think tank. I think it's the Rand Institute. I'm not sure that I posted on Twitter recently that evaluates the economic impact of this strategy of lockdowns as well as the health impact. Right. And, and the, the data are quite clear across multiple countries. That kind of lockdown behavior does nothing but destroy economies. Right. And, and, it, and it contributes to loss of life uh so that's that's a, an example of an ill advised so getting getting back to the story you wanted the origin story i so w- we're aligned in that uh these kinds of incentives can bring out the worst in people and i'm sure your investors are in your community your listeners are are well aware of how uh money and power can drive people to mm-hmm. do things that uh um might you know for those of us that care about things like our soul and our well-being uh intellectually and psychologically it it can really drive people into dark places
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: that's that's and not everybody you know francis yeah. crick uh to 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 my experience was just a noble person and there are those that rise above this uh and i want to be like them i try really hard uh and one of the outcomes of all of this is I've kind of found my own niche and I I provide services and do my thing and contribute to human health. But I really have no uh, interest in getting on the merry-go-round. Uh, I've never sought the Nobel, although in theory, I'm one of the top candidates right now. So we'll see how that plays out in the next month. Um, but uh, so what happened was I, I was in this um, amazing intellectual stew pot at the Salk, which is basically a temple created by March of Dimes money uh, to vaccinology. If you think about it mm. and um, amazing building a uh, brutalist architecture, uh, fantastic art, brutalist example. Um, but uh, I was a very small fish in a very large pond full of intellectual giants. And so you have to kind of, as a graduate student, you have to figure out your niche. And you want to figure out a niche that's not going to get you eaten alive by the sharks. And so I focused on the issue that was a big important one fundamentally in retroviral vectors for gene therapy, which is how is the RNA packaged? Why did it matter? Because if we could come up with ways to get the amount of virus coming off of a cell culture higher, then it would become more economically viable and uh, also more medically viable. Then you would have higher concentration virus at lower cost, something, again, your your audience can appreciate. So that's where I was coming from, is the fundamentals of RNA packaging into retroviruses. In order to do that, I had to develop some technologies (coughs) to ask the underlying scientific questions. And and basically, I had to devise a way to put RNA into packaging cells that complement, that have all the necessary proteins from retroviruses to package foreign RNA and put it out as a new retrovirus. So that was the idea. And then once I could do that, then I could make point mutations in the RNA that I was putting in and ask how that affected the production of the viruses. And then I would have a good system. To allow me to really ask these fundamental questions and make the overall productivity of retroviral production much higher, so that was okay. the logic. Okay. And uh, that that was turned out to be a much harder lift than you would think, because no one had really figured out how to make large quantities of RNA and purify it. Uh, they were making very small amounts and then using them uh, to make small amounts of recombinant protein using lysed red blood cells, rabbit particulate lysates, and things like this. But no one had really been working on on delivering RNA efficiently and right. making large quantities of RNA and what the structure needed to be of the RNA and what are the elements necessary to make it work. And so I had to solve all those problems. And in this pressure cooker, um, kind of isolated away, frantically working stupid long hours uh because I you know had performance anxiety and wanted to live up to the expectations. Trying to Uh, make your plan. um, And you know, and my wife can attest to that and she has, uh it was not a happy time for her, uh even though we were living in La Jolla near the, you know, near the water. But um that's the way it was. And what came out of that was a cascade of, of events. I I was being mentored by a postdoc in the lab that was working on gene therapy in a mouse model. And, and he had a problem. He discovered a problem that the, uh, yeah, there's that one that happened at Vical. So this is an earlier one with Dan St. Louis that I'm referring to. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, what Dan, Dan did was, uh, it's, it's not there. I, I got a, a, uh, a okay. acknowledgement on the paper oh, okay. um, you can look it up but uh so dan found out that the expression only lasted about three weeks and mm-hmm. everybody was thinking this was some sophisticated gene regulation event and i dove into the medical texts because i'd already finished my first two years and finished immunology and all that good stuff and uh and pointed out that this was perfect for the timing for an immune response mounting an immune response and mm. that set off a cascade because that was heresy. What what the implications of that were was that the whole idea of gene therapy was not viable because if you're putting a foreign gene, even though it's a good gene right. into somebody's body and they haven't had that protein expressed before their immune system will reject it just like the mice rejected the foreign gene. So for me, this was a huge paradox. The whole thing that I had come to the Salk for and was so obsessed with gene therapy, turned out it's not gonna work, my friends. Um, so then the, the question, and that's turned out to be the case. That was actually Crescent, that interpretation. Um, uh, now, an aside was that the, there was a postdoc in the lab, the senior postdoc named Dinko Valerio. This is another story you'll, your audience will appreciate. So, Dinka was working on this totally new viral vector technology. It was cutting edge, 1987, 1988, 1989. It was a totally new viral vector adenovirus. Okay. And uh, Dinka was right at the forefront of adenovirus technology. And when he finished his postdoc, he went back to the Netherlands and uh, started a company focused on using adenovirus for gene therapy. Um, that company was called Crucell, and it struggled along as a gene therapy company. And then he, then he made a decision, and he came to me at a, at a uh, conference, uh, a viral vector conference a few years later. And he said, after we left the Salk, and he said, Robert, you're right. We, we should focus on using gene therapy for immune response instead of uh, as a therapeutic. And so I'm going to change my, the focus of my company to be a vaccine company. Whose cell exploded, and was sold to a, a little company you've heard before called J and J. Yeah. Um. And that that is actually the basis for the J and J vaccine that we all know here in the states. Is that technology platform? So, actually, all of these, all of this tech that we know of as modern generation vaccines here in the states for COVID, actually all come from Intervirus Lab. Which wow. is uh, kind of um, odd. People don't think about that, but uh, that's that's God's honest truth. And uh, so, in my case, it, I had these discoveries with mRNA delivery, and I filed patent disclosure in January seventeenth um, of nineteen eighty-eight on the discoveries I'd made in the fourth quarter of eighty-seven um, uh, on on using mRNA as a drug. And then one of the logical applications of using mRNA as a drug was, uh, you know, in the gene therapy space was vaccination. And vaccination is kind of the low-hanging fruit in terms of applications for gene transfer technology, because you don't need much protein. It doesn't have to work very good as a gene delivery system. And you can still generate really strong immune responses because the immune system amplifies the response. So a little bit of protein is all you need. Matter of fact, it's exactly what you want.
0: Yeah, that's it's what I heard that protein. mRNA dissolves quickly essentially in the body. I don't know if dissolves is the right word, but it's also better because old vaccines are essentially built off of giving you the virus in a, in some sort of defunct form. But with, our, uh, with mRNA, you're getting, you're not getting the virus. You're getting some like... I mean, yeah, you get a yeah. fragment,
1: it's as, if, it's as if you're infected, but you're only expressing, you're only producing a, a small subset of the proteins. Now, that turns out to be a problem in the current situation. Yes. Because they're only expressing Talk one of it. the proteins. Okay. Um, and uh, so you mentioned old school vaccines. Actually, the oldest school vaccine is uh, the smallpox vaccine based on cowpox. Okay. Okay. And it actually goes back, yes, it goes back to Jenner, but it goes back to China when they would take smallpox lesions and uh, little
2: scabs
1: and they would blow it in the noses of
2: of patients to inoculate
1: them. So, so they, that's actually mucosal vaccination, by the way, what they were doing back in the day. Um, so, so the thing is that, um, with our modern smallpox and polio vaccines, you know the vaccines that wiped out polio. Right. Those are live attenuated viruses. Same with yellow fever. Okay. Yellow right. fever is a live attenuated virus. I got that. And uh, um, those vaccines work really good. They're very durable. They're good for eradicating disease. Uh, they what do they provide? A broad based, robust immune response that covers all of the proteins manufactured by the virus for the most part okay that so to read forward to our present situation where just a couple weeks ago it was revealed that natural immunity is about 20 times more effective than vaccine for providing protection against SARS-CoV-2 well that kind of is like the you know old school live attenuated vaccines that work like gangbusters, but the problems, that's an old term, sorry, before your time. No, no, Um, gangbusters
0: uh, are
1: good, we're good, we're good. Okay, so let me just recap there.
0: So you're saying that natural immunity is 25% better, stronger, longer lasting overall versus these COVID vaccines that we're getting now?
1: That's true, Um, and as measured by protection from disease and infection, so. They're about 20-fold better and they're broader and they have more durability. That's a fancy vaccine word for how long does it work? Right. And one of the things that's become clear with the Pfizer vaccine is the durability. I've been fact-checked on this and told that this is a false statement.
0: Efficacy, it's diminishing
1: drastically. Okay, yeah, Yeah, so so we call it effectiveness. Uh, Efficacy is in a clinical trial. Effectiveness is in the field. so uh, just the technical terminology here, we've got to get this right, or the uh, ankle biters will be at us. Sure, sure, um, sure. So uh, so, um, so, those data are clear. And, and that's one of the things, there's a few events that have come out that have really scrambled the narrative that has been pushed by uh, public health across the world, but particularly right. here in the United States. Very much. One thing me. that your listeners will appreciate, um, the United States has been seen as the world leader
2: intellectually not, yeah
1: in in this space and uh so there's been a whole lot of of um uh de- deference let's say there's a there's a nice word deference to whatever is coming out of uh tony fauci and the c d c um and time has proven that that has uh been a lot um the, those statements are often wrong um uh I, I like to say tony fauci is like a surgeon often wrong but never in doubt um so uh maybe he should have been a surgeon <laughs> um so uh in, in you know they they're, they've they've been willing to put out uh information you know starting with the mask flip-flops all the way through that's based on personal opinion, rather than based on data. Here's another, while we're at it, a uh, little thing that I'd love to get to your investor community. Um, the, I've lived in, and been at the tip of the spear through way too many outbreaks and pandemics and, and epidemics, uh, H1N1, uh, Zika, Ebola. I, I was the one that brought the, the Merck vaccine to Merck. Um and uh um uh not this one this is before my time this is, um, but this is uh, the but reason why
2: one.
0: I heard that this is the, the this is the outbreak why vaccine companies can't be held liable because after this and yep. after all these people came this is the one that caused them to now say hey if we're ever going to do vaccines in the future we can't we don't want to be held liable and the lobbying and the and the you know elbow rubbing rubbing Around this is this is the one where it this was. Is, where- this is
1: what set it up, and yeah. and I'm sure your investors will appreciate if if uh, um, if you if you create a situation where the risks are um, assumed by the public and the government, then um, the incentives for a given company. To be uh mindful of the risks become great greatly diminished uh, and you can make a ton of profit in an outbreak. They are extremely profitable. I argue it's worth profiteering that's right. but uh that's that's the truth of it right and we've seen we've seen how many billionaires have been created uh during this outbreak right.
0: Um, well, that's that's but, some but stuff the I want to talk about because this is where, like, vaccines work, right? To 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 an extent, the vaccines work. They might be complications with it, but are or you think they don't work at all? And that's okay. I'm just trying to get that that question put out
2: there.
1: Yeah. So so my my position is on this because it it's a little nuanced. The the press wants to push us into you're either pro vaccine or you're anti vaccine. Right. And uh, there's a lovely article out in Forbes that talks about the noble lie, and the loss of the middle. Mm. And I reside in the middle space. Um, the 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 my my current hangout, um, if you appreciate the terminology uh, of modified limited hangouts, my current hangout is that the data clearly demonstrate protection from death and disease that uh, um, provides clinically significant benefit in aggregate uh, to the elderly, immunocompromised, morbidly obese and those with other uh, risk factors. Um, that it's important to understand, you know, we, we get lost in the fear porn that is promoted here but uh but and you know it right it it sells newspapers it's clickbait and yeah. it's what drives uh it drives the legacy media and a lot of the modern media is is um headlines and articles that generate fear and other strong emotions and uh that is not very conducive to accurate uh, dissemination of information.
0: No, right now there's a huge per- there's a huge I uh, forgive me for interrupting. I I just I, I I know you've got so much knowledge on this stuff and I, I feel like I want to get some of this stuff to the forefront where exactly what you're saying. Sorry, I interrupted now I'm taking a pause, but I think like what you're so you're saying the vaccines are good in certain use cases, but not all use cases. And right now there's a lot yeah, of
1: because, because the risk because the risk of severe death of severe disease and death for almost everyone, especially children, but almost everyone up to the age of 60 and even beyond, the risk of of death from this disease in and, and, and in is is in the range of 0.002 or 1 percent. Okay. Wow. So if if you get infected, on average, right. all of the death and disease is clustered in the elderly. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's the same truth with influenza. Influenza takes out the really old, right. just like this disease does. Right. This disease is more efficient at taking out the old. Now I'm I'm going to just illustrate the this kind of give give a gift to your. Uh, audience, by sharing some of my own medical history. Okay, so I don't, I don't really like to do this very much, but it, it illustrates the point. I was infected in the BioGen outbreak with COVID, with SARS-CoV-2, and I developed COVID. So what that means is I was at a a conference in Boston, and physically staying across from BioGen headquarters. There's an old remodeled uh, fire station there that I was staying in and walking to mit for this conference on drug discovery um and ai and ml and uh and i got infected came back sick as a dog um discovered famatidine by self-treating as a therapeutic and uh had a pretty rough clinical course um you know couldn't walk up the hill without having to stop for breath and uh i so i don't want to minimize the the nature of this disease if you get it. Right. Uh in the disease is your body's hyperinflammatory response to the virus. It's right. not actually the virus is prim, is the primary cause. It's not virus damage. It's your body's reaction to it that drives a lot of this disease. Okay. So in any case, in my case I developed covid and I developed long covid. Right. Um, I've had it ever since. I recently completed a course of ivermectin that's helped me quite a bit, in my opinion. Um, And uh, despite all that, no, I didn't take the horse drug. My horses take the horse drug every other month. uh, But I did not. I took the human form. uh, And and I recently had a full pulmonology workup with pulmonary function tests, which I expected was going to be horrible. I'm totally within normal limits, got a clear, clean bill of health on my pulmonary function, and uh, I'm good to go, and I may actually live for another 20 years. Uh, so, yay. Good. Um, good news. Point is, <laughs> yeah, I was, my wife was really relieved. Um, so, uh, the point is, yeah, this is a bad disease. It's not the flu. It's worse. But it's not going to necessarily put you in the ground, especially if you get early treatment. Right. Okay. So now another thing that's contributing. There's all kinds of variables that are contributing to the mortality rates in the states, which, by the way, are among the worst in the world. Right. They are they're the worst. Way, in the world. They're they're yep. way over treating with dexamethasone. Yep. Um. They're they're not they're blocking. There's act been active blocking of early drug treatments by the NIH and the FDA and the CDC. Yeah. A lot of us are just going nuts trying to figure out what are they thinking. Um, yeah, so Merck, ivermectin is one of the safest drugs in the world. Well, that's and that's um, what it I want to mention medicine. for a second. This
0: this study this study shows what was it? They were getting something like 60 milligrams. I saw. It. Maybe I don't want to dig through it while we're on this call. But this is study. I
1: think they are getting so 150. Just, you just showed it. Okay, you just showed the dose. Okay, oh. scroll down. Scroll down. 150 to 400. Okay. 400 is a wicked high dose. Yeah. Um, Where the is standard that? dose for humans and for horses, by the way, is 200 mics per kg. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, one, one mig per kg is, is a wicked high dose. Um, and, uh, it's safe. So all of this gibber jabber about which Merck put out, I mean, but talking about disclosure of conflicts of interest, uh, Merck has licensed uh, a drug developed at Emory under Defense uh, Threat Reduction Agency sponsorship that is a direct-acting antiviral. And they paid a bunch of money to Ridgeback for it. Ridgeback had licensed it from Emory. Uh, DOD had paid to develop it. Merck licensed it, then wouldn't play ball with us at the DOD. We wanted to try testing it. Um, And uh, they put out this press that uh, ivermectin is not safe. It's It's, not safe and it's it's an
0: animal disease. That's why I want to show this. For those that can't see the visual, we're on Merrick's own website about a 30-year donation program where they were donating me- mechatizan, which was Ivermectin and they did li- distributed more than 300 million to mil, uh, they distributed free doses to more than 300 million people with more than 4 billion treatments donated. annually. 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 Yeah. And so that's where, and that's where we're in this propaganda thing. And I shared another thing here where we were talking about emergency use. The FDA may authorize unapproved medical products or unapproved uses of approved medical products to be used in an emergency to diagnose, treat, or prevent serious or life-threatening diseases or conditions caused by CRBN threat agents when certain criteria are met, including there is no adequate, approved, and available alternatives. There's no one making money on ivermectin right now. It's out a patent. It's been around for 75 years. There's no money in it. And they can't, they can't have these emergency use of these vaccines. If so the, there's the, same, the
1: same is actually the same is actually true of hydroxychloroquine. And right. there's, there's people are using hydroxychloroquine all over the world. I'm about to join in, I'm, I'll travel to Rome next week for a meeting of physicians from all over the world that uh, will be uh, um, Developing uh, consensus protocols for early treatments, uh, and most of those are based on either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. Yep. There's there's a, a legal case proceeding that I can't talk about that uh, relates to what appears that there are, there is evidence of conspiracy within the government. To shut down both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. as early therapeutics. The government yeah. actively blocked the development or allowance of any early therapeutics. Um, yeah. Uh, so the, the 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 I was just speaking to some lawyers yesterday that had been I'd been supporting another case involving regulatory capture and vaccines. And um what what was observed in that case is child's play compared to what i'm seeing happening here the regulatory capture that has has occurred and and it's really governmental capture um as you know in, in embodied and enabled in contract terms that for instance have been leaked from pfizer uh is is profound. I and and the the information control uh and and horizontal integration that has enabled yep. this information control yep. is is n- never been seen before at this level. And uh so we're you know the iber, the ivermectin um push uh um stating that uh this is a horse drug and you've got to be crazy to use it.
0: Yeah, uh, no, this is, this is a study, Ivermectin, a systemic review of antigen, is this the one I think it reviewed, is this the one f- they reviewed 50 50- there, years?
1: There's four or five of them out there. Um, yes, this one. Uh, so it's like, so,
2: it's proven
0: uh, effective. Several studies have reported antiviral effect of Ivermectin and RNA viruses such as Zika, Dengue, Yellow Fever, West Nile, Hendra, Newcastle, Venezuelan, Enquine, Quine chikungunya course, yeah avian no, influenza yeah. yeah. respiratory syndrome human immunodeficiency virus type 1 and severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 furthermore there are some studies showing antiviral effects, effects of, of ivermectin against dna viruses such as equine herpes type 1 bk polymavirus pseudo rabies porcine
1: Ker- Ker- Coronavirus and bovine herpes virus. And bobi yeah. Herpes virus. So Since, yeah. So there, there's a the problem the 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 logic, um. And we tried to get at the DOD. We tried to get um allowance. What what we now have allowance for is to proceed with testing the combination of famotidine and silicoxin in both outpatient and inpatient studies. Um. So that I ind finally cleared. But we had wanted to to also test uh, in rigorous, double-blind randomized clinical trials, the combination of pomodidine, celicoxib, and ivermectin. And we have uh, outpatient data and laboratory data supporting it that uh, that combination is even more effective. But the FDA um, insisted that we would have to demonstrate the mechanism of action of ivermectin uh, in Cell culture before they would allow this trial to proceed, which would have cost us another, you know, six to twelve months.
0: Well, it's like legal battles. The deepest um, pockets can win because they just stretch it out, ah. they, they reschedule it, they make you show up to the next one. So, let me ask, let me ask about this. So, there's clear censorship going on. You said there's lawsuits in the works. We just saw, if those that didn't see, there's been billion-dollar settlements for these companies that have clearly create like done criminal and civil offenses from kickbacks to marketing uh, drugs that are known to be dangerous. Um, What should have, I guess I should ask, what as the inventor of the technology, what would have needed to happen? what would need to happen for it to have been fully ready for humans to take it? The mRNA vaccines that are, the COVID vaccines are out right
1: now. and let me just uh, restructure that just a little bit. Sure. Um, here in the states, we have three vaccines that are, are uh, either emergency use licensed or tentatively uh, market authorized. Uh, the BioNTech product is not ac- not actually on the market yet because okay. it's the same as the Pfizer product mostly, but it's technically a different product because it has new labeling and packaging and things like that. Okay. Um, so, so really we have three vaccines they're all genetic vaccines they're all based okay. on gene therapy technology. They all express exactly the same protein for the most part, which is the spike um, and it's the intact spike with one with two amino acid modifications in the receptor binding domain that lock the receptor binding domain, fancy words for your audience that's the part of the spike pro the purpose of the spike protein is to bind allow the virus to bind its target cell and to insert or kind of inject the genome of the virus into the infected the cell that's being infected right so that's what spike does and so it's got these two functions and it, it undergoes a structural change in order to do that i like to use my two hands there's actually three subunits that come together so if you think of my arms as the stock and then there's this head a bulbous area you see it in all the pictures of a coronavirus right and it this is represents spike and uh the the binding part is out here on my fingertips uh that recognizes the receptor that it binds to and um they move around flop around uh open up go upside down they move all around yeah and uh the what's been done is to insert a two Two amino acid mutation into spike that makes it so that instead of flopping around and undergoing this conformational change for fusion with the virus, it locks it into an open conformation. And it was based on the assumption that the the ant- antibodies that will inactivate the virus bind. If you can think of this as catcher's gloves, right? Um, if you know if that works for most of your audience. Right. So there's a, you know, a pocket in the catcher's glove, um, that, and that's the pocket that the receptor, that the protein on the cell binds to. So think of it that way. Um, and, uh, you know, that, you know, well, it's like a, it's like a fielder's glove. It's more like a fielder's glove because it can be open or closed. Right. 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 Um, Okay. And so, uh, Think about the guy in the outfield with the glove uh, that's you know got big fingers and it's open or closed, right? And uh, so that when the ball hits it, you close it up and you don't lose the ball, right? So it's kind of like that. Only um, they've introduced a mutation that's locked it into the open conformation, so the glove can't close. Okay. And uh, the assumption was that the antibodies were going to have to hit the binding pocket. So that's the pocket in the glove, right? It right. would stop. And so if they hit that binding pocket, then they'll make it so that uh, the complex, the virus can't bind onto a cell. That's the whole underlying logic of all of these vaccines Okay, is they are exclusively trying to target inactivating antibodies in from B cells that'll bind to that pocket in the glove and make it so it can't catch the ball basically. Right. Okay. If you think of the ball as the receptor on the cell. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. So, uh, okay. So this isn't going to work for your European audience that plays cricket, but uh, hopefully people will get it. Um, okay. <clears throat> so, so uh, it turns out that's not true. Um, the uh, there's been a ton of work since looking at monoclonal antibodies and various antibody preparations and where they bind on spike. And for the most part, they're binding here, okay, right at the tip, or they're binding the backside, or they're binding at the junction between two spike proteins. okay. Right. So the whole idea for the mutation that was introduced, people say, oh, that mutation was introduced to keep spike from being toxic. No, in order to have done that, the people doing the bioengineering would have had to have a time machine because it wasn't known at the time they were doing the bioengineering about these other toxicities associated with spike that we now know about right, okay? so and they've never the FDA never forced Pfizer at all to go back and prove that the engineered spike was safe and did not have the biologic activities that the wild type spike has the kind the wild type being the kind that's actually on the virus, so uh, just to disambiguate so this so we't. Mean- we don't actually know whether the and i've been fact checked on this but they kind of don't get the point um uh my my statements in the brett weinstein podcast was that spike is a toxin that is true right it has been proven again and again and again native spike is a toxin and so then they say well but the geniuses at nih engineered it so it's not going to be a toxin Well, that's interesting because they've never shown that. They've never said that was the reason they were doing it. And they would have had to know and acknowledge that it was a toxin way back then um, in order to be able to uh, foreshadow that they would have to make this engineering. Last point on this thread is that with pharmacology and and pharmaceutical development, uh, I like to say that the rules of the French judicial system apply. You're guilty until proven innocent. And so you can't assert that uh, um, that a given uh, protein is safe and effective unless you do the hard work to show that in fact it's safe and effective. Um, so, so I don't know why you're pulling these. These are uh, other examples of of issues.
0: These, are, and that's why I want because I I want to ask: Are these at all real concerns? So I feel like what you're saying is the vaccines help to fight this version of the coronavirus, but it, it might, what's the term? Does it cause, would it make you, is it hypersensitivity? What's the term? Vaccine induced disease enhancement?
1: Is that a real thing? Is that something- Thank that- you for using that. Thank you for using that term instead of antibody dependent enhancements. Antibody dependent enhancement is a subset of vaccine enhanced disease and replication uh, which is the vaccinologist's worst nightmare. It's what we ran into with all prior attempts to develop uh, vaccines against these uh, coronaviruses, with two exceptions, uh, those both being veterinary vaccines, both of which are administered intranasally. Yeah, and you can actually really? find clips from from Tony Fauci warning about ADE, and it's the ADE warnings are written into the federal... Uh, the FDA comments uh, that uh, were the basis of the emergency use authorization. Um, There have been no rigorous studies done about whether or not vaccine enhanced disease is occurring. Um, Despite the FDA saying that they should be done, the vaccine developers have chosen not to do them. The FDA hasn't forced them to do them. And though there, there is the one thing that your listeners need to understand is that it's become wicked hard to publish anything that goes against the dominant narrative.
0: Right, the dominant narrative. So
1: that's that's, a, that's another thing that's come out, is that almost all of these publications that we've relied on to be providing objective truth are dependent on pharma money for advertising right. and sponsorship.
0: And pharma, we've, we've, and we've so seen, has... has- just almost annual lawsuits of hundreds of millions of dollars. So you just to say that they've never been so, able to- So in create...
1: our, in our oh, sorry.
2: You,
1: you, can't, you can't publish this stuff. Um, it's just wicked, wicked hard. And so that's why you're not seeing it come out in the literature. And if you're an academic, why would you spend six months of heavy lifting what? and uh, scarce resource, scarce dollars on trying to demonstrate something that you're not going to be able to get published, right? It's crazy, you wouldn't do it. It's just so, you know your investors understand this.
0: I want to clarify something you said before. You were never able to create a safe vaccine for a coronavirus in the past, except for two exceptions. Was yeah,
1: feline that... infectious peritonitis and bovine coronavirus are both veterinary vaccines, right? And they're both considered kind of crummy vet- vaccines by the veterinarians, right? But those two did manage after a long one of the things that's nice about veterinary vaccines that you can't do with humans really is that you can challenge the animals with lethal doses of virus Mm. and it's ethically acceptable um uh it's obviously not ethically acceptable to challenge human beings with uh, lethal doses of virus right and the truth is that because of the nuances of the ace2 receptor and the tmprss protein that that activates the virus once it's bound. Um, because of those nuances, humans have different affinities in their ACE2 for this virus than other animals do. And so basically, we don't have an animal model that's that's really worth much. Uh, the phrase Tinker's Dam comes to mind, other phrases yeah. too. Um, uh, so, So we kind of we can't do the challenge studies in the way that we would love to be able to do, uh, because we're, we, we end up just like with AIDS with very artificial systems, like using the virus that, um, Murray and Preston Marks identified years ago and related viruses to challenge monkeys or human basically gain of function versions. Right. Uh, um, uh, to to do those studies and they're still not conclusive and we still don't have an AIDS vaccine. So in this case, I don't want to give your investors a sense that there's no hope on the horizon for a decent vaccine. No, no, no. These vaccines are first generation and they, in their rush to get something out the door, they focused on the low hanging fruit, which was spike as a single antigen. And there are multiple other vaccines in development and some even licensed. And, uh, full disclosure, I'm involved in one of those being, uh, advanced in India by a company called Reliance, uh, led by, uh, owned by a gentleman named Kesha Ambani. You can look him up. You'll find he's one of the wealthiest people in the world. And Reliance is the largest conglomerate in India. Something that most Americans don't recognize is that uh-huh. there, there's actually a huge financial horizon in India. Um, uh, and, and, and their, their Indian, uh, um vaccine developers are are really, really good. i okay. I think that uh, uh, the the vaccines industry and pharmaceuticals industry in India will come to dominate uh, global supply mm. um, over the next decade or so. Um, so it. that's that's a, a news you can use. Sure. Um, but but are the the team that I've been helping coach uh, at Reliance now, has uh, entered, has obtained allowance to begin phase one studies, and that vaccine, just to give an example, is a much more traditional vaccine. It's manufactured in in um, in mammalian cell culture and in uh, E. coli in in uh, bacterial culture. Right. It's, extre- it's designed. Its purpose designed to be extremely low cost because Dr. Mr. Ambani wants to be able to vaccinate the rural poor in India. And, mm. you know, a billion people uh, at, at uh, even 10 bucks a dose, that adds up to some real money. Very, very fast. Um, uh, <laughs> right. So so uh, that's, that's his goal, is to be able to provide a product uh, that will uh, be safe and effective. And in that case, that product expresses uh, two different proteins. It's a subunit of spike Ah, uh, the receptor binding domain. It's not the whole protein, so it doesn't have these biologic activities. Right, and it's also a subunit of one of the other, um, core uh, matrix proteins, the nucleocapsid protein, associated with the virus. And so it has a broader antigen range, and we'll see how it works. Yep, and it's adjuvanted with tr- more traditional adjuvants, alum and cpg. So that's that's something. That's one of many examples of second generation vaccines that are going to be coming onto the market. And uh, in terms of, I, I don't want to pump, you know, my full disclosure, oh. I'm uh, on retainer to Reliance vaccines. Sure. Um, but uh, so I'm not pumping Reliance. They're one of many examples. But if your investor community is looking for new horizons, they may be wanting to look at next generation products, not necessarily at these products. I think there was, as I recall, there was an announcement by Pfizer to stockholders that they should expect that this current vaccine um, loses its effectiveness at something like six months from now.
0: So vaccine Um, only lasts for about six months. We're almost at the top of our time.
1: Well, I'm, I'm talking about not only the durability for you, I'm talking about the overall efficacy of that vaccine in will general, fall below acceptable limits because of the escape mutants that are being generated.
0: Right. There's over a hundred variants right now, right? There's something like five plus variants a week, they're talking so about. So it's
1: we we now know that this virus is mutating at a higher rate than we had expected. Right. Um, and there's some things, there's some nuances here. Uh the thing about vaccinating into an outbreak when you already have a whole lot of people with virus. Is that what you do? Is you this is you know you got to kind of remember Darwin and natural selection. Yeah, evolution. You'll you'll select you'll select for escape mutants. Right. Um, the easy way for everybody to understand this is the overuse of antibiotics in the livestock industry it's created superbugs. Is correct. Okay, so you can think of this as we're creating a super virus bug through the selective pressure of. Um, mass vaccination when we don't need to vaccinate everybody Everyone. Right. we really only need to vaccinate the people at highest risk um, and then the virus would be subjected to the natural immune systems of everybody else where you have a probability of, of dying of you know a tiny fraction right. of a percent right um and that and and that is only that high because the government in its infinite wisdom, has seen fit to make it impossible for docs to actually practice medicine. You know, and and actually recognize try different that, treatments. Yeah, recognize and start implementing them. We've been trying them for a year and a half now. We know a lot of things that work. Um, the The situation, like with famotidine and Celicoxib, famotidine is over the counter. You can all buy it. It's called Pepsid. And Celicoxib is called Celebrex. A lot of you use, use that for your arthritis. Um, so the combination, and it turns out that Celebrex blocks COX-2. Um, by the way, aspirin blocks COX-1 and COX-2. We don't recommend aspirin because there's been some history of adverse events in, in respiratory diseases with aspirin, and uh, it's basically blocking too much of your immune response. Right. But there are papers out there showing that high-dose uh, pomodidine, so high-dose pepsin plus aspirin actually, it's pretty effective. Um, right. So uh, that's, there's a bunch of these drugs. The government has, has actively blocked um, their uh, deployment and blocked the ability of physicians to use them. And it seems that the logic is that they perceive them as competitive with vaccination, that if these drugs are available, people won't accept vaccine. Right. Well, because why would that be? Well, because the vaccines aren't perfectly safe and they aren't perfectly effective. Right. One of the things that's kind of become increasingly apparent. Um, so, So so that's that's kind of where this is going. And it's unfortunate that we've all been blocked, but we probably have. There are credible estimates of hundreds of thousands of Americans unnecessarily dying because of mismanagement of the clinical disease, pointing that that rate of death in the average population of something in the range of 0.002, you know, uh, 0.001% risk of death. If you're not in the super high risk groups, that's actually artificially high because we haven't been able to deploy early treatments. If we had, It would be lower, and that's part of the reason why, here in the States, uh, um, our our death rate, our mortality per case of hospitalized COVID is higher than just about anywhere else in the world. Right. What we should be doing is keeping people out of the hospital in the first place. So any of you that have had this experience or your relatives, what's been happening is you go to the emergency room, you say, doctor, doctor, I'm sick. I can't breathe very well. And they test your blood oxygen and they say, Ah, you aren't yet at the threshold of having blue lips. Go home and come back. And you say, But, doctor, right. is there anything, you know, come back when your lips are blue, functionally? That's, you know, right. having a, a blood Let's oxygen get vaccinated lower than it, And
0: that's it. Lower the than it. On your deathbed.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and if you haven't been vaccinated, I mean, there's things like the Toronto Star headline the other day that basically say, well if they weren't vaccinated and they come to the hospital, you should just let them die um, right. I, I I'm shocked by all of this, but uh, the the under the truth underlying all of this is that there have been good uh, repurposed drug therapies and American physicians are blocked from using them They're blocked from being able to practice medicine under threat of losing their license. you're okay. only allowed to To practice in the way that the NIH says you're allowed to practice, right? So that's that's where it's coming from, and essentially that equates to what Tony says is what goes.
2: Right. Tony doesn't
1: practice medicine. Tony's right. never treated a COVID patient. We got right. to get that through our brains, okay? Well, I- and Tony, Tony is subjected to um, the incredible. Uh, conflict of interest relationships with key stakeholders all across this space, uh, particularly in the vaccines industry. He's tied as a tick with Bill Gates. and we've got a whole you know Facebook and, and Zuckerberg is invested in vaccines. Yep. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is is the, their portfolio is invested vaccines. Uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is one of the largest shareholders of J&J. These entities that we think of as benign and not having conflict of interest that are funding a lot of this propaganda campaign and these fact checkers and everything else, they all have significant conflicts of interest. For sure. Well, again, we talked about the settlements of these pharmaceutical
0: companies, and if they're paying $2 billion, $3 billion 3000000000 dollars how much money does it cost to buy someone? I mean, how much money would I have to give you to get you to say your tap water made you feel ill? You know what I mean, or like some sort of shampoo made your testicles small? My, my wife,
1: my wife always, my wife always says to me, "If Pfizer had only realized how cheap you could have been bought, yeah, um, yeah, then they would yeah. have had none of this headache." <laughs> right. So this is
0: something again. People are concerned. Should I get vaccinated? Why? Are you like. That's really, that's really what a lot of people are concerned about. We haven't been able to get vaccinated because Vietnam was, didn't think they needed them and they were slow to get them. And now in the Philippines, you have to book like uh, schedule and all that stuff. But that's, they're pushing everyone to get vaccinated. Hold it.
1: Hold it. Let me, let yeah. me, let, you're, you're a great case study. Let me dive into that. Because I had a long conference call with a colonel uh, ter- that represented a group of 20 nations in, or entities in Latin America that have ties to the UN. Okay. okay. And and he and it was quite a tense phone call. He was pressing me. Uh, it was basically a consultation to help them uh, devise policy. And uh, there was translators involved, and I had to be at the, on my tippy toes intellectually
2: because
1: wow. um, uh, um, I knew I was going to be influencing Latin American policy. And he he made the case that. It's not in the interests of these Latin American countries to vaccinate. The vaccines only last for a few months. Right. They require cold chains that they don't have. Right. Pfizer in particular has quite egregious contract terms. Right. And, uh, and they just don't see it as, as making sense in emerging markets. The counter thread is that the West, Western nations are basically hoarding all the vaccine and yes. super saturating all of their uh, populations with vaccine um, unnecessarily and not making it available for the high risk groups in the rest of the world. So there's a, a lot of tension in this. And I got to say that the positions that Vietnam took and other emerging economies are taking, uh, emerging economy nations that they they really don't want to buy into this carousel with the vaccines. There's there's a, a mer- merit to those arguments, and uh-huh. I and I I have to acknowledge that for those situations. Um, there's there's a logic there that's sound, and now that we know that natural infection provides superior immunity, uh, you know the idea that many of them are focusing on, many many of these, for instance, may coat ivermectin is over the counter.
0: Yeah.
1: Um in Got
0: it in the, got it in Vietnam, uh, got it in the Philippines. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so um uh you know there are good protocols out there uh that can be used for early treatment. And if you get on this thing early, you end up not going to the hospital in the first place. Right so that kind of makes sense to me. Um yeah. and why we're not doing it here in the States, I just don't get it. And yeah. a lot of people are perplexed about this. And yep. that's that leads to all the conspiracy thinking and the regulatory capture observations, because there's just so many things that don't make medical sense; they only make financial sense for the vaccine companies. Uh, so right. that leads to uh, people speculating about, uh, you know, their minds go off into Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset and we can go down that rabbit hole for another two hours if you want. Sure. Um, uh, not that we have time today, but uh, there's there's a whole lot of stuff there uh, that that uh, active minds trying to make sense out of the nonsensical uh, legitimately will go down, uh, right. trying to investigate those various uh, um, alternative explanations. I try not to do that. I try to say, you know, based on the, the facts that the I can demonstrate. Yep. Yeah, um, yep. that's. It's not my job to, I, I'm venturing into public policy a little bit with the op-eds that Peter Navarro and I are putting out in the Washington Times, but uh, um, for the most part, I I try to stay away from those. But for sure, in terms of of emerging economies, there's a logic to saying, uh, "Not for me, thank you very much." Now, here's the observation, and this is another one of the conspiracy Legos. There's a group of, I think, five different uh, national leaders in Africa that have all said, yes. made clear statements that they don't want to take vaccine, every one of which has been assassinated. Now, uh, is that just circumstance or not? I I don't know. I I, I don't know African politics. I don't know ah. what's going on there. Um, but uh, but there's certainly, uh, for those that are conspiracy minded, it's an odd uh, coincidence.
0: Well, you know, we don't, um, have to, we don't even have to label them conspiracies because there's just like real facts and certain things are just very fascinating and insta- interesting and that's, I mean, having been involved in the, cre- having created the baseline technology, that's why I'm really curious to know about this because if, if, I, I did jujitsu uh, for six years, trained with Hicks and Gracie and a bunch of others, and you know, and it's all about kind of you do things to to know their next move, right? So it's like I, it's almost like Wayne Gretzky said, you know, when I play hockey, I go where the puck is going. And so there's all this push to cause everyone to get vaccinated and these people disappearing and all these things like that. And it's not to try to get so much into it, it's to talk about the real facts. That's why I tried to use Zoom to show some stuff about you know that the states is leading the way on this, yeah. but they're clearly in it for profit. If you look at our life life expectancy versus I know, I know we're up for time.
1: Um, yeah, but let me, let me leave you with one thing that relates to this thread that your audience will appreciate, I think. Um, one of the things I've observed again and again and again through these outbreaks is that the WHO and CDC and public health leaders generally operate only on what they consider to be validated data. Now, that's starting to break down, and like with the triple jab, they're starting to get way out on the edge on things that they, they really don't have data for, and I think are risky, which is part of why there were these resignations at the FDA. because yeah. of that. But in general, but in general um, uh, what you see, if I can put it in terms of uh, your investor community, it would be as if someone only makes investment decisions based on what they consider to be fully proven data. Now your investor community will appreciate that if they were to do that, they would get their clock cleaned every single time by momentum traders and uh, those traders that are using a totally different approach, which is basically risk mitigation looking for leading indicators, and watching for black swans. This is, this is language that your, your community can appreciate. Yep. I know you can, yep. okay? I, I advocate that um, what if there's anything we learn from this, it's that the World Health community needs to start acting more like stockbrokers. They need to think like stockbrokers. They need to be looking for leading indicators. They need to be performing risk mitigation, and they need to be constantly surveilling the landscape for black spawns, Not six months behind the data, because they're only going to react to things that are validated. Right. And that I think at that point, is the, the, yeah,
0: yeah, you make money by being that, right, so, and by being right, you can't wait for success for 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 census. I forget. Naval Ravikant had some quote like that. Like you, you win and make money by being right first, and to be right first, you can't wait. Right. Precisely. For everyone to agree.
1: Yeah. Yes. Precisely, and that is how we need to manage global public health in the time of outbreak crisis. Precisely, we need to think like stockbrokers, right. and we need to put the infrastructure in place like the investment community has. I mean, think about the massive investment that's been made in AI, ML and all the other toolkits, oh, yeah. to allow your investor community to make accurate predictions. Okay. Well, why don't we yeah. have, we ought to have 10 times that infrastructure for public for health. health. Right.
0: And, and that's where I don't, why don't, how do we not know? How do we not know they already do? And that's partially why things are being pushed. And I, I don't want to go down the conspiracy rabbit hole. I do want well, to Well, I can
1: tell you as an insider that they don't. Okay. Oh, okay. There, there are movements afoot, and there are some, the CIA has advanced programs like Argus to try to do this, that's data mining, but it is just like with the investment community, the term is data fusion. The data come in from a whole lot of different kind of uh, data streams of different formats, and it is wicked hard to integrate all of those into a comprehensive package which is what, why folks like your community hire people like me, mm-hmm. um, is to try to make sense out of all this stuff because the only way you can really do it still, the, the MLDL stuff isn't good enough yet to be able to integrate all of the different disparate things that a human being, a human consciousness that's experienced can process. And it's they're not the, the, the computational tools are not yet sophisticated enough to incorporate a lot of these risk scenarios. Right. But they they may eventually get there. And you know, God bless us if they do. But by that time the robots will roll the world, I think.
2: Right. Um, well Elon but,
1: Musk announced uh, Intel... the Tesla bot.
0: I don't know if you heard that. The Tesla bot, the <laughs> iRobot bot's gonna be here soon enough. He said it's not gonna go faster <laughs> than five miles an hour or something, so you could outrun it if you had yeah, to. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, no, if, if you if you spend any if you hang out, it's fascinating to parachute into Silicon Valley. The ad, it's just like in D.C. In D.C. the ads are totally different. They're all about selling big contractors and Beltway bandits. Um, and if you parachute into to Silicon Valley and listen to the radio, you get bombarded by ads for very sophisticated issues relating to uh, the latest uh, trends in computational technology and deep learning. Uh, and right. and you know people in these different sectors have insights that uh um are not generally available to the rest of us but i guess that's why you do your podcast right now we're at we're 15 minutes over pretty close yeah, yeah. Um, I, I want to
0: try to ask one or two rapid fire questions before we get off just and and so one is you know you aside from the the vaccine escaping, or sorry, aside from the virus, escaping the vaccines, could the mRNA spike protein, like cause issues with like prion diseases? Can it pass, can the, so, the lipid nanoparticles, so can they pass the blood brain barrier?
1: So um, those are, the, the honest truth is those are risks. We talked about risk mitigation and risk identification And normally what's done is that we take the time to run those risks to ground before we start jabbing people. Right. But in the heat of battle uh, in, in under the pressure of overloaded hospitals,
2: we decided
1: that it was okay to roll this out without solving all of those questions. And um, there, there, if, if you, if you take as a working hypothesis that the vaccine encoded spike behaves akin to the natural spike, then you have to conclude that, that the next logical step in that is that uh, natural spike does open blood brain barrier. will let things get across into the uh, sanctum sanctorum that normally are prohibited from going in. Um, and it, it, the spike is cut loose from the expressing cells and the vaccine developers did not, were not forced to characterize where the the product, uh, the active drug product is going and what cells it's delivering its payload into and how long they make protein and how much protein they make. None of those are known for any three of the, all, all three of these genetic vaccines. So it sounds uh, so like if you don't need
0: to take it, don't take it.
1: I, I, that's my uh, logic is that there are adverse events that are well-documented, and it's important to remember that those adverse events that are documented have to pass through a filter. They have to be clinically significant. So, for instance, if you're a high-performing athlete, um, you may notice that your peers have a drop in their performance uh, after receiving vaccine. Um, and if you're out on the edge of your own performance, say you're a, a 30-something NFL football player, um, you may say, hey, I'm close to retirement, and the last thing I need to do is take a jab that's going to drop my performance by 3% or 5%. Those those kinds of performance changes aren't clinically significant, so they don't show up in the C- CDC database. but wow. people observe them. Um So that's why you've got footballers and track stars and such like saying, no, I'm not going to take the jab uh, because they are seeing in their peers modest uh, decreases in functional performance after taking the jab, things that are subclinical. The other thing about a lot lot of these adverse events, it's right in the in the FDA's authorization letter for uh, the BioNTech product commodity is that the CDC now acknowledges that their databases are not sufficient for detecting rare adverse events. Um, They say it flat out. So this is something that I had said on Tucker Carlson a couple months ago and everybody got their tails in a twist because Tucker just wants to take down the government and Robert was supporting Tucker and blah, 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 blah. Blah, Well, now it's actually written into the authorization letter that the very thing I disclosed on Tucker which is that the bears database and the other CDC databases aren't inadequate for assessing these adverse events. It's, it's now, it's now officially in the, in the, in the the FDA licensure package. Um, So, you know, within two months we went from crazy, Robert is throwing bombs that are uh, fact checked to a federal document that validates everything I said, and that's happened again and again. So the problem is that with your question, about should I take vaccine? The honest truth is I cannot point you to robust documentation that demonstrates what the spectrum of risks are. I know, and it's in the literature, that the risks are much broader than the ones that the FDA officially recognizes. Right. For instance, one of the more common ones is viral reactivation. How does viral reactivation happen? I don't know. It seems to be some inflammatory messaging that's happening post-vaccination. Can I assure you that the uh, lipid nanoparticles aren't uh, affecting ovarian performance or aren't affecting placental performance? No, I can't because we don't have the data. And anybody at the CDC who claims otherwise is lying. they're, They're misleading. We can use whatever euphemism you want
0: Right, um, right, right.
1: But they don't have the data to support that. So they shouldn't be saying those things. Um, it, and so I can't tell you, I can't say to you, hey, here's your risks for vaccine based on if you fill out this little thing on your personal uh, device, it'll, and then I can run it through a machine learning tool and give you a risk of, of what is yeah, your risk for yeah, adverse yeah, events exist. and what type. I can't do that because the data does not exist to support that, that uh, app on your cell phone. Now, there are apps for your cell phone that I've seen that are based on deep learning and machine learning data that can very accurately predict your risk of severe disease and COVID. Okay. And that's part of, of the toolkit that I'm recommending be deployed so that you can accurately judge for yourself at least what's the true risk for you personally um, to developing severe disease, being hospitalized, et cetera, if you were to get infected by the virus. That's the kind of stuff that's available. Why we haven't had it distributed, that's another one of these big questions of, you know, what are they thinking? Um, But uh, So I, I hope I've run that Question: Should I take the vaccine to ground? The answer is I can't answer it. Right. Um, well, I can answer it really that, clearly. If, go ahead.
0: If there's a, a synthesized misfolded protein, how how would we know? If we were synthesizing, we misfolded wouldn't, protein.
1: because the FDA has not forced the developers to do the heart heavy lifting in the rush uh, to jam this out. And with all of the public messaging and PR, keep in mind that all of that propaganda that's being blasted out to the general public is also being received by all the bureaucrats and the folks at CDC and and FDA. Um, And they know darn well that their supervisors don't want bad news. Uh, So, you know, if you don't want to, it's just shown by Marian Gruber for signing because she got into a cat fight, apparently. With the CDC over the third jab, um, the, the way this works is you you get in line with the diktat, um and lose your soul and your and your professional integrity, or you resign. Those are your options. You know. Wow. And if you're if you're working for the federal government, your primary driver is security. Right. Okay. You wouldn't right. take a job at 80 percent a market rate. Um, if if you weren't focused on those bennies. Right. Um so so all of this, you know, I think a lot of this we don't have to go to Klaus Schwab and and uh, the great reset. I think no. a lot of this we can explain by financial incentives, regulatory In the, capture right. and structural disincentives that exist within the system that ought to be fixed.
0: So, is there another way to end this pandemic? in a faster method than trying to rely on these vaccines?
1: Well, well, the, the you can look up in in the Washington Times, Peter Navarro and I uh, have put out two op-eds to this point. And then I just did a long interview with Epoch Times. I know it's Epoch Times and some people discount that. It's now the fifth largest publication globally. Um, so that's coming out in American Thought Leaders. There's uh, the first, uh, Part of that interview just dropped last night um, and you can find it uh, it is extensively footnoted um, the references are in there and. Uh, um, what I what Peter and I have laid out is a four pronged strategy of vaccinate those that are at extremely high risk. Provide uh, apps that allow people to assess their risk, so they can make their own decision about whether or not they want to take the jab so empower people to assess their own risk, um, make available early treatments. And the other part of this, in order for early treatments to work, we have to have home diagnostics. And they have those in Australia, by the way. The FDA and Tony Fauci have blocked their development here in the States and licensure, but but the Aussies have them, you know, and it's it's a quick diagnostic based on antibodies and, and other things. and and you can tell whether or not you have been infected. And uh, what we need is a rapid diagnostic home test that with, with all of the leakiness and flaws and false positives and false negatives that'll come with that strategy, but at least make it so that people have got to be able to be identified early on in the course of their disease, that they have the disease so that you can begin therapy early on and keep you out of the hospital in the first place. So four things have got to happen. Vaccinate those that are at highest risk. Um, uh, Don't vaccinate everybody else. Provide early medicines, uh, whether they're repurposed or the latest thing from Pfizer or Merck, I really don't care. But right now the repurposed ones work pretty good as far as I'm concerned. Good enough that it would save at least 80% of the deaths. And that's like ivermectin, chloroquine phosphate, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D. That's the protocols we're going to work out in Rome uh, in a couple of weeks. Okay, at the international COVID summit, and we're actually going to speak about those protocols to the Italian Senate in Rome. Boy, you know, put that on your bucket list. Get to address the Senate in Rome. Um, So that's (laughs) uh, so that will come out in a couple of weeks. and, uh, I don't, I don't think I have to wear a toga, but I'm going to wear a white lab coat. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> watch out for the knives in the back. Uh, so I've, I've been told. Um, so, uh, in any case, uh, um, uh, early treatment, existing drugs are pretty darn good. They're not perfect, but they're pretty darn good. Make available self-assessment tools, um, both for your risk for the disease and also whether or not you become infected and your risk for uh, developing the more advanced disease. And, uh, and we're going to have to kind of suck it up, you know, put on your big boy pants. And uh, this virus is going to move through the population, and that's just the way it is.
0: Right, and, right,
1: right. Uh, um, and it will, it will evolve, and hopefully it evolves to a less pathogenic, more highly infectious version. Right. which is what is the usual course now i've got six minutes until the next one okay and my wife has just bought me breakfast so i know i'm so right i'm
2: now? so
0: sorry um i just don't you know i'd love to have you back i don't know if i'm going to get you back so you know um i could ask the questions faster but the last i guess one of the no, last I, of
1: things... I seriously i i gotta go. drop i got okay, okay we're, all right. we're done all right, thank you so much okay. for your time
0: thank you so much for these answers i do hope to speak to you again in the near future give your wife a big hug for me and everyone and just have yourself a wonderful, a wonderful day. Take care. Thanks. Ciao. You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second,